Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome again to the program. That Jesus came not just for the Jewish people, but he came for Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people. That's you and me. If you're going to purchase a new appliance, you want to see some evidence that what you're buying is fit for purpose and will deliver on its promise to perform. We like some proof before we believe claims and promises, don't we? In the New Testament of the Bible, there are records of Jesus performing miracles. It was visible evidence of his power and authority. It was the evidence, if you like, that he could be believed. Tonight, Dr. Andrew Corbett is again in the New Testament book of John. Let's join him now for the fourth sign, 5,000 for lunch. If you are unfamiliar with Christianity, you are going to discover as you get to become familiar with Christianity that it is something that is set apart from all the other religions of the world. All the other religions of the world are essentially philosophies that have ideas, and that's what the, that, that is what a philosophy is. It, it's a set of ideas. Christianity is different. It is completely different. It actually claims to be the true knowledge of God, and it also claims to offer an intimate knowledge with God. And we base that on what Jesus Christ said. In the Gospel of John, the fourth of the four Gospels in the New Testament, John is the last one to write his account. And that's why we're calling this series The Last Gospel. The Gospel of Belief, John's Gospel of Belief. And it's also John's Gospel of Belief because it's, it's not John simply putting forward ideas about Jesus or Christianity. He is not, let, let's not be under any illusion that John simply wants to inform you about this is what Christianity is. It's, it's not that. He wants his readers to become Believers who become followers. That is his mission. He actually states that this is his mission toward the end of his gospel account. Whenever we look at any book of the Bible, any literature in the Bible, we've got to ask some questions. Firstly, we've got to ask, when was it written? Who was it written to? And what is the genre of literature in which it is written? Now, this is really important because some people who don't approach the Bible having answered those questions end up getting completely confused. For example, when the Bible is, is telling us that it is written at a specific time to a specific people, we, the readers today, are essentially looking over their shoulder and we have to do the best we can do to see what they saw. Now, the mistake that can be made is that we presume that it's written to us today. And I've said this in many of the places that I've spoken and people have mis either misheard me deliberately misheard me, misquoted me, or just they just don't want to hear what I'm saying now. But this is what I'm telling you. That when, for example, Paul wrote his epistle to the Ephesians, he wrote 
to a, a church that was in a place called Ephesus. And he wrote at a time in the 60s, that is around, say, 60 to 62 AD, AD 60 to 62 AD. Now, this is really important because it's when we look at the context of, of what was happening culturally, geopolitically, what was happening in the church at that time, we can begin to see what the original audience saw. And when we read in Scripture things like this will happen, we today could make the mistake of thinking it's going to be our future when in fact the intention of what the biblical writer was saying was often that it was the future of the original audience, the original recipients. And I hope this is really clear. So when we read the accounts of the life of Christ, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, we know that Mark probably wrote his account fairly early. There's good reason for thinking that Mark's account came pretty early. There's also good reason for thinking that it was written to people who were essentially Roman. And the, the reasons for that include that Mark's gospel has all of the hallmarks of the things that Romans really valued, such as uh, power and glory. And we see Jesus not teaching a lot, something that, say, for example, the Jews and the Greeks valued, but just demonstrating his power. And it's the shortest of the Gospels, and so there's a good indication that Mark was writing as essentially the secretary to the Apostle Peter, and that's, that's the account of his Gospel. When we read Luke's Gospel, we know Luke. Luke is a Greek name. We know that Luke was not a Hebrew. He was not a Jew. And he's writing to an, a Gentile audience. And probably Luke himself was a Macedonian or a Greek at least. And he's writing with that in mind. And he, we know he was a doctor. And we know that he had uh, almost presumably, we can say, he chose a profession that demonstrated great compassion for people. And so what we read is that oftentimes in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had compassion on them. And so we read this. This is the occasion in which we, we can read Luke's Gospel. When we see Matthew, Matthew was a Jew and, and he, of course, was a tax collector. And there would have been all kinds of cultural pushback on Matthew. But then he was converted. He became a follower of Christ. And so now he sets out to show that Christ is the promised Messiah. Jesus was indeed the Christ, the son of David, a title that every Jew understood meant he was the one to come. And so now we're reading John's Gospel and we appreciate that it was probably written in the early 60s, sometime 63 uh, AD, AD 63 or so. And he's, he's writing almost certainly to the Christians in Ephesus. And there's a, again, there's good reasons for that. And, but he has a heart for his people, the Jewish people. It is his motive to show them by, by demonstrating the very things that they said were necessary to prove that this was the Messiah, that he, he sets out to do exactly that. And the way he does it is he frames it in a Hebrew mindset 
The Hebrews used numbers and symbols and language to convey meaning that perhaps we, the modern reader today, would ordinarily miss. So, for example, the opening chapter of the Bible says that God created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. That number seven speaks of completion. Every Hebrew knew that. Every Hebrew knew that seven spoke of completion, the completion of God's works, seven. It spoke of completion and perfection in that sense. It's all done. And so what we have is John presenting Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, the the one who presents seven signs. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus is not just the Jewish Messiah. He's the Savior and not just the Savior of the Hebrew people. And John is showing beyond any doubt that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he's, he mentions this word world. And there's a number of key indicators that we're going to see in John's gospel where he shows much to the, at times, horror of the Jewish leaders that Jesus came not just for the Jewish people, but he came for Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people. That's you and me. That's ordinarily, that's, that's those who are listening to me right now. We who are not born of Hebrew stock. And we see that Jesus had a special heart for the outcast. He had a special heart for women. Women were, were treated as less than men by Hebrews in that day. And Jesus doesn't do that at all. He treats them with a great deal of respect. And so what we have here is John's gospel and each of these signs are going to build and build and build as we approach to the final sign, which will be his own resurrection. And so as we look at now in in John chapter 6, we're going to pick up the fourth sign. And I've called this 5,000 for lunch. (laughs) 5,000 for lunch. And having told you what I've just told you about the the why behind the what, why, why is John telling? John is very selective. Why is he telling us what he's telling us? He's he's left a great amount of detail out. And partly we know from tradition that it, it appears that it was the Apostle Andrew who encouraged John to write his account. And the discussion between them, according to the tradition, is that there was no need to retell what Matthew or Mark or Luke had said. There are times when John indeed does clarify he adds some further details but he largely is very very selective in what he includes here and so there are there are details that i want to point out to you and in in chapter six it it opens up and it it's be very very easy just to okay and and miss the point so this is what I, i want to ask a question before we jump in to chapter six and the question is this where are we Because in chapter 5, we saw Jesus was in Jerusalem. We saw that he had gone to the the pool of Bethesda and he's healed the lame man, the man who'd been lame for 38 years. And 
And that had caused quite a stir because he had done it on the Sabbath, the day, the sixth day of the week, the day when, <coughs> sorry, the seventh day of the week, when that, that was every Jew was supposed to cease work and to stop. And, and so this, this in itself was controversial. But he's in Jerusalem, so we know that. And we know that it was a feast time. So we know that there were many, many people there. And Jesus, uh, as all mainly all good Jews did, they went to Jerusalem during the feast times. This is what you did. It, this is important to understand that during the feast, particularly Passover, and what we'll notice in the Gospel of John, he's, he wants the reader to take note of certain things. And, and then he'll, he'll introduce it and then he'll just expect, now I'm not going to keep telling you this. I, I, I want you just to note that I've told you this once and now I want you to pick it up every time it happens in the text. And that, that's going to happen here too. So the thing that I want you to note as we read John chapter 6 is about the Passover feast. Because it, it's just quickly mentioned by John. And the question I ask, and I trust that you ask as you try to study God's word, is why did he do that? Why did he just throw that in? Because it seems random. And again, I want to remind you, as I've said previously, there is nothing in the Gospel of John that is random. Nothing is random. Everything is there for a vital reason. So here's my question. Where are we? In the previous chapter, we were, no doubt, in Jerusalem. Now where are we? How are we going to determine where we are? Well, I want to show you on a map, and I want to point out some of the things on this map. And for those who are listening via radio, you'll, you, you just have to trust me on this one, that in the north, of, to the north of Jerusalem, there is a place called Samaria, and then to the north of that is a place called, a region called Galilee. In Galilee, there is a large lake, and it was known as the Sea of Galilee. It was fairly large. Later on, it became known as the Sea of Tiberias in the mid to late first century. In around, there's some townships around the Sea of Galilee, one of them is Capernaum, which, is not, which is, means the town of Nahum, that, which is the Nahum the prophet. And uh, there's other towns around there to the just slightly to the east of the Sea of Galilee, still to the north of it. So Capernaum is to the north uh, north northeast of the Sea of Galilee, sorry, north northwest of the Sea of Galilee. To the north northeast is a, a town called Bethsaida. So this is this is important because if you look at it on a map, it, it, there, it, there's a bit of a bulge in the the lake there, and, and in one sense, what we're going to see in a moment is that the disciples, Jesus and the disciples, go to, it says, the other side of the lake. And essentially what they're doing is crossing from Capernaum to Bethsaida, to the other side of the lake. And that's what I want you to see. So where are we? That's where we are. Now, why is this significant? Well, it's significant because this area was largely a Gentile area. There was... There were Jews, of course, but there were 
people from different parts of the world. And, and so th- this is an important point because let's, let's, well, let's read the text. This is John chapter 6 and verse 1, but let, let's, let's pray first, please. Father, as we now look at your word, I pray that you would open my mouth to speak to those who are listening right now via radio, via the internet, via the live stream, wherever they are, whether they're watching, whether they're listening, whatever they're doing, I pray that you would open people's ears to hear, open people's eyes to see, and especially open people's hearts to receive. God, I'm aware that when the Apostle John wrote this gospel account some 2,000 years ago, he prayed exactly what we've just prayed, that you would bring people to believe that Jesus is who he is, the Son of God, the Promised One, the Messiah, and the Saviour. And I pray, Lord, as a result of what we look at now, spiritually, that lights would go on in people's souls. And I pray for this in his name. Amen. All right, so this is, this is where we are now. We're in John chapter 6, and we're starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now, notice there I've mentioned that John does this a lot. He adds these details so that readers can pick it up. Verse 2, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain. Now, just let's just realize what's going on here. Jesus did not do this to attract the crowds. This was not what he was doing. Because this verse, verse 3, tells us why he left Capernaum, where he was crowded. So he's left the crowds in Capernaum and he's gone, the, the I think it's about uh, 30 miles or so, to Bethsaida. And it says this, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. So he wanted to be with his disciples. His mission was to invest in his disciples. But we're going to see in a moment, the crowds became too great. Let's, let's have a look at this next verse. And here's where we have to go, what is this doing here? It says this, now the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. That's verse 4. So here's what I want to point out. And I've already mentioned it. The Passover was at hand. Why do we need to know that? Why do we need to know that? Well, here's why we, here's why we might need to know that. Firstly, this tells us that this event is happening 12 months before Jesus is to be crucified. So now you might think, but gee, we're only in, we're only in chapter 6. What's happened? How come we're 12 months out? We've only gone six chapters. There's, there's another uh, 15 chapters to go. What happened? Where, where's the rest of the detail? Exactly. John is skipping a lot of detail. He's being very, very selective. In fact, if you count the number of days that John is giving us detail about in the life of Christ, 
It's about, some scholars believe, it's about nine days. There's only nine days that John is describing here. So, so take note, because each of these things that John is now describing in his mind is super important. So the Passover was at hand. So we know, Jesus knows, he's 12 months away from his crucifixion, and he knows he's going to be crucified. But what else happened at the Passover? That's right. People came from all over. Jews came from all over the known world. They came from all over the known world to come to Jerusalem. That's what Jews did. We, I mentioned this right near the start. That's what Jewish people did. All devout Jews would make every effort to travel to Jerusalem. So where's Jesus? Near Bethsaida. Why? Why is he there? John, at this point, specifically wants us, his readers, to know that at the time when people would have gone to Jerusalem for the Passover, including Jesus, instead, they've gone the other direction. They've gone to the east of the Sea of Galilee to hear and be healed by Jesus. So we read verse 5, John chapter 6, verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then. So remember, he's up a mountain. Or now, mountain is a bit of a stretch, actually. That Greek word, oros, simply means a high place. So it could have just been a hill. But he's gone up. He's, he, he's just wanted to be alone with his disciples. He's walked, presumably, quite a distance. Maybe they sailed across. And now he's at this place and and. The, the crowds have turned up and so his compassion for them sort of puts a delay on his plan just to spend some time with his disciples. So lifting up his eyes, it says then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, why did he ask Philip? In fact, there's there's only occasional conversations that Jesus has with one person in <laughs> the Gospel of John. And we've already seen some of them. We've seen that he had a conversation with Nathaniel. We've seen he had a conversation with Nicodemus. We've seen that he has a conversation with the Samaritan woman. We saw that he had a brief conversation with the lame man. And now he's having a, a private, personal, one-on-one -on -one conversation with Philip. But why? Why Philip? Why him? Because we, we read in John chapter 1, verse 44, and this is where, again, I think John wants us, the readers, to pick this up. He introduces things and he expects you to draw a line between the introduction and these further references. And in John chapter 1, verse 44, it says this, Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Again, I'm reminding you, this was a largely Gentile territory, but they are right now near Bethsaida. And Jesus turns to Philip because he's from there. <laughs> you know this area, Philip. Where are we going to buy bread enough for these people? <laughs> and it can sound like Jesus is genuinely asking a question. But here we have what one scholar said was Jesus being playful because he knew all along what he was going to do. His question to Philip was to present 
to everybody who was listening in on this conversation, the absurdity of the question and the absurdity of the situation they were now in. So John is, is narrating some of these scenes to set it up so that we understand what he is now showing us. And what he's now showing us is that Jesus knows everything. And there's a big word for that. And it's a great word. It's both scary and comforting. And it's the word omniscient. Jesus is omniscient. <laughs> he knows everything. And because he knows everything, this is a very playful scene. And we read in verse 6, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. <laughs> so you can see the playful scene going on. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii, and one denarii was a day's wage. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little one of the disciples, verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So now we have the other two people who are also from Bethsaida. Said to him, uh, there is a boy or a young man here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they for so many? Oh, man, that... So clearly Jesus is going to be the hero in this story. But I just want to just pause here and say, hang on, just let not, let, let's not forget, no one at this point knows how this story is going to end. So let's just remember the great sacrifice this young boy right now is prepared to make. This is an amazing scene. Now, let's also consider, let's come back to that statement about the Passover. John has told us the Passover was right near it's just about there well there's two essential elements for the passover one was the paschal lamb that is the lamb to be sacrificed at the passover that's the passover lamb paschal that's what that word means and the unleavened that is barley bread the barley bread now interestingly in none of the passovers that john mentions in his gospel and he mentions them in john chapter 2 verse 13 this one in uh, chapter 6 verse 4 then again in he introduces the next one in chapter 11 verse 55 and then that plays right into the final one in the upper room which eventually is when uh, it's the time frame when jesus is taken and crucified but in none of those none of those is the main element of the Passover spoken about. That is the lamb. And the reason is, he's already told us. In John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day, and this is John the, the, about John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by, John the Baptist is and said behold the Lamb of God and John wants us to know this that the true Passover lamb was Jesus himself and in this sign that Jesus is about to perform he uses barley bread the very bread that's used in the Passover celebration and later on in this chapter as we'll see in our our next installment 
he will describe himself as the true bread. Now, this situation, these, these few barley loaves, hardly, hardly a loaf, just a piece of, of barley bread or uh, barley cake, really. This was an impossible situation. There's 5,000 near starving people who followed Christ some 30 miles or so, what's that, 40, 50 k's around from Capernaum to come to Bethsaida to hear him and to be healed by him. And there's one young boy's meal to share between 5,000 people. It's a ridiculous situation, especially when you consider when Andrew said it's a small fish. Small fish, you're not kidding. It would have been like a pickled sardine, literally. Um, Don Carson calls this situation ludicrous. It was a ludicrous situation, not, not, not just absurd. It was, it was ludicrous because it was impossible that such a meal could be used to feed such people. It's just impossible. So we read in verse 10. Now, of course, we know how the story is going to end, but let's read it anyway. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now, there's a clue. This, the number, 5,000, applies to the men, let alone the women and the children. But, but it, that's the number that's going to be used, men who sat down, 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted, verse 11. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Wow. Just as with the Passover meal, nothing was to be left behind. Nothing was to be left behind. We read about that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 10, where it says, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. Nothing is to be left behind. John chapter 6, verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So we see in uh, Matthew chapter 14, verse 20, where this story is also told, that they ate and they were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Now we are not told why Jesus wanted his disciples to gather up all of the the leftover fragments. But we do know this. And let's consider this. Firstly, what Jesus did with the number of fish and loaves on each occasion, and there were two occasions when he fed a multitude, it had a bearing on how many baskets of fragments were left over. Now, apparently, this was an important point that he actually wanted his disciples to understand. And maybe this was to be the essence of what he wanted to teach them when he took them up that mountain. But now he's giving them a visual demonstration of it. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 9, we read this. Jesus saying, Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or... The seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered. And let's just point out, the five, uh, the five loaves and the two fish resulted in 12 baskets of fragments. And the seven loaves and the more fish resulted in seven baskets left over. Now you do the maths. In other words, when Jesus started out with less, 
There was more left over. There was more fragments. When he started out with more, there was less fragments. In other words, what's, he, what, what's the point? And he's asking them, do you not understand what I'm trying to show you? Do you not understand the point I'm making here? The point is you think you can't do anything for me. You think you're nothing. You think you're just fishermen. You think you're uneducated. You think you can't change the world. You think because you're just teenagers, you can't do anything. But with me, I can use you to change the world. It's not what you can offer me. It's what I can offer you. It's me. It's not you. Don't you get it? When I fed the 5,000, I had less, but there was more left over. This is what I want you to understand, that with me, you can do more. The second thing, quite possibly, that Jesus wanted to teach his largely teenage disciples was don't leave any place in a mess. That's what I just reckon anyway. All right. So unlike the previous three signs that we've already seen, the turning of water to wine, the raising of the, the girl from the dead and the, the healing of the lame man, all of those were very discreet, but this wasn't. This was very, very public, very public. In fact, all of these people were... You know, they, they would have been in Jerusalem, but now they're here with him and they are whipped up. They are very, very excited about what has just happened. And they know it. They saw it. They experienced it. They saw the, the young boy with his, with his few loaves and two fish. They saw what happened. And so it says in John chapter 6, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the, the prophet who is to come into the world. And that's the expression used by Moses the one who's the prophet who is to come. But it says this, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Verse 15. Well, what do we see here? We're going to skip the next sign just for a moment and we'll deal with that in, the next, in our next installment. But the people's belief was based on what Jesus could do. It wasn't yet on who Jesus was. They believed that Jesus could do miracles. In John chapter 6, jumping ahead in, this, in this te the text of John chapter 6, in, in verse 26, Jesus tells the people the next day, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now this is where you've got to get this, you've got to get this. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Can you see it? They believed him. They believed that he could do signs. They believed that he could do miracles. 
But Jesus said, but you don't believe in me. In me. That's what I'm looking for. That's what the Father is looking for. And that's the work that you need to do. Not keeping the Passover. Not keeping the rituals. Not doing all the ceremonies. It's simply putting your trust in me. In me. So what do we see here as we bring this to a close? Jesus was and still is inviting people to believe in him. He's still doing it and he's doing it right now. and He's calling you to do it right now. No matter where you're at, no matter what you've done, no matter what guilt and shame you're battling with and dealing with, no matter what doubts you have, you are not a million miles away from God. You are just one prayer away. A prayer that says, God, reveal yourself to me. God, please forgive me. Come into my life and help me to live for you. I want to be your child. I want what Jesus said I can have, and that is forgiveness of my sin, eternal life that begins right now and goes beyond the grave. How can you have peace with God? It begins with a prayer, a prayer something like that. But let me pray for you now. I've led you in that prayer and I pray that you make that your prayer. But let me pray for you now. Father, I pray for all those who've joined with us now. That, Father, they might come to believe in Jesus and that they would turn to him and accept him as the one who can give them the kind of life that you've created them to have. May they come to know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and may they enjoy the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Last Gospel, Part 9, from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, the people's belief was based on what Jesus could do, not yet who he was. Jesus was and still is inviting people to believe in him. And it begins with just one prayer. More of Finding Truth Matters next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.